Hello, and welcome back to Proofing in Lies. I'm Elle Rochford, amateur baker, professional sociologist. I'm Andrew Shriver. I'm a public defender in the Cleveland area. And we're excited to bring you Season 3. Yes, welcome back, everyone. Thank you for joining us after a a pretty long hiatus there. Uh, We've got some great guests this year, and we're really excited to uh, get back with you. New microphone, new us, Mm -hmm. I would say. We're very excited to have a brand new microphone. Uh, it is the brand that uh, the hosts of BHD use. You might remember BHD from one of our past seasons. Yeah. So very excited to, to have upgraded. Yes. No, thank you to them for the uh, recommendation. Um, and hopefully this makes everything just a little bit more listenable for you guys uh, as we um, enter our third season here. And we do listen to your comments. Uh, So the strong suggestion to get a microphone was one of the several reviews we've gotten. Uh, So please like, subscribe, comment, review our podcast. It helps us improve and it also boosts us on the algorithm. Yes. Uh, And it helps us get better guests because they feel more important, I think, I assume. I don't know. I think all of our guests are incredibly important. It's true. Speaking of guests, though, who do we who are we starting off with? Who who do we have this week? We are kicking off season three with Elaine Westfall. Uh, she is a PhD student out of uh, University of California, Irvine, uh, and we're talking with her about eco terrorism today. Okay, an interesting topic. Incredibly interesting. So, what is your impression? What do you think when you hear eco-terrorism? Because you weren't uh, you weren't here for the interview. No. So, right. So, we are recording this intro obviously later. Um, I was otherwise engaged at the time of the interview, so unfortunately, uh, I had to leave Al flying solo. Um, I mean, I think of eco-terrorism. I remember, you know, I'm uh, sort of just old enough to remember some of the stuff in the '90s, like people putting nails in trees. Um, and you know, things, things of that nature, some of the like Ted Kaczynski style, like bombing, like Mm. mail bombings and stuff like that. Um, I remember the, the French Navy sinking a Greenpeace ship for some reason, uh, like way back in the day. Um, and then more recently, I guess you think of people who are charged with terrorism for stuff that, um, probably doesn't really fit most people's definition, you know, uh, some of the water protest or water protectors, the pipeline protesters, things like that, um, that kind of were just uh, raising their voices a- against, you know, uh, eco- ecological destruction. Um, and then I guess people who committed more minor acts of vandalism, right? Those people who chalked, um, I forget where it was, but they, they did like chalk art out or chalk drawings outside of some facility and got charged with some absurd crime for it wow okay and i can't emphasize enough he was not here for the interview (laughs) but you really did touch on a lot of the points we're going to talk about um so that's really impressive yeah um it's interesting to me because i remember growing up in the 90s and early 2000s it was a really common like cartoon villain or um like super hero movie villain was you know the radical environmentalist who was gonna you know wipe out the population to to help nature or things like yeah, that there was um, um what was i'm trying to remember there's the tom clancy book where that's yeah the villains are um oh my god i can't remember what it's called but there's that the, the uh, very bad book where the uh, <laughs> the uh the villains were right trying to like kill everyone with a uh strain of ebola 
so that nature could recover. Um, and it, I would just remember, I read this when I was like fairly young, like 13 or 14. I remember it ends with them like, spoiler alert, like accidentally turning it on themselves in their like remote compound and like dying horribly. Mm. And like, that's just how the book ends. It's just like this brutal. Anyway, uh, but yeah, no, I, I remember that being a like touchstone in culture yeah. for a little bit. The fear of people becoming eco-terrorists is what I remember far more than any actual events of of terrorism or of violence. A lot of the, the sci-fi I was interested in growing up had that as an element. And I was a vegetarian starting at a really young age. And I got a lot of flack from adults who really either felt like uh, people interested in the environment were extremists or that they were silly people. And I mm-hmm. think being a young person and being a woman, I got more of the, like, this is a silly thing for silly people. Right. Um, you know, the PETA frees an animal onto a highway and the animal gets hit by a car, right? There, right. there were a lot of jokes about environmentalists as not being serious people. A um, staple of fucking drive time... Uh Sorry, a staple of, of drive time radio for like decades, I think. Right. And now, from my perspective as a social scientist, I'm really interested in these narratives that aren't based on any actual current events about environmentalists. Uh, what does it mean that we have spent so much time in media discrediting this group? Yeah. Well, and I think you, I think you uh, did really nail it. I mean, the, the sort of default um even even among like fairly liberal uh i don't know comedians and like culture touchstones you got either male uh, eco-friendly people or like you know who were who were all just like ted kaczynski right like mm. the serious like bad guys right like guys with long hair and a long beard who are gonna like blow everything up and then like female uh eco-friendly types were all the like you know hippie long dress peace necklace like what if we were just like all one man sort of people and um it's an interesting interesting dynamic right so i was really excited to talk about this we cover in the interview i was interested in in bringing on an expert on eco-terrorism because it's been in the news a little bit um not any actual like events that we would consider terrorism but people being penalized and prosecuted as if they had committed violent terrorist acts um so that was really what brought my attention to this and that was my interest in in having an expert on and if you haven't listened to our episode with anna meyer we talk about applying the label of terrorism uh, to different groups and different actors and there's a lot of problems with the label of terrorism We found it extra troubling when this label's being applied to environmental activists, but say not white supremacy groups in the US. Uh, So if you haven't listened to that episode, I really recommend you go back and listen. Uh, You don't need to have heard that episode to fully enjoy this one, but I think it helps. Yeah, well, it's a good good companion piece. Um, Speaking of delightful companions, and great segues. Uh, what, did we, what did we make this week? So we made a cascading flower cake is what I'm going to call it. So we're playing on the environmental theme and maybe the ephemeral uh, quality of nature. Uh, <laughs> if we're going to yeah. be fancy about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, no, so what I made is a chocolate cake with uh, coffee simple syrup 
and chocolate ganache, and then it has uh, white chocolate flower petals sort of falling down the side of it. And it looked really professional. I was yeah, thrilled. Yeah, no, that looked spectacular, <laughs> and it was delicious also. Well, the chocolate ganache and the coffee syrup and the cake itself sort of melded together into one block. So yeah. it was almost like like cutting into a straight piece of fudge. Yeah. Uh, which meant it went a long way, and... <laughs> I, I really was like almost a chocolate mousse or brownie. Mm-hmm. We used a recipe from Ann Reardon, who is one of my favorites. She is a food scientist. She's a YouTuber. And she just released a cookbook that talks about the science behind baking, uh, which, of course, is everything I love. You know, yeah. it, it ticks all my boxes. Our oven is still, I think I complained about this last season. Our oven temperature is not accurate. Uh, so the bake didn't go quite to plan. It didn't turn out the way that it, it should have, but it still turned out incredibly good. And then to make the flower petals, I have a marble rolling pin. And so I wrapped the rolling pin in parchment paper and stored it in the freezer and then melted white chocolate and piped out petal shapes, sort of all different sizes and different parts of the curve. Uh, so I had all these sort of organic flowing petals. And I, of course, love my gold luster spray. So I sprayed half the petals with the gold spray. So the bottom half of all the petals was gold and metallic. It looked stunning when it was put all together. I also invested in a rotating uh, cake tray uh, or a, a rotating sort of platter mm-hmm. so that you can spin the cake as you decorate. <laughs> So I was able to play with that and make some fun uh, kind of purple ombre frosting on the outside. And I like stenciled in a little design. Honestly, I cannot hype up. Having a rotating decorating plate is a game changer. It is so much fun. No, it's great. I mean, and that was honestly, that was a truly beautiful cake. Uh, You know, peep, peep our Instagram is, I think, something the kids say. Maybe I don't think that's true. Okay, well, you know, take a look on our Instagram platform for pictures of this beautiful, beautiful cake. Uh. Thank you. And that's a good reminder. We should be always be plugging. I think that is something the kids yes. say. Yeah. Uh, it's probably not. But uh, I've heard it somewhere, mm-hmm. I'm sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, so follow us on Instagram at Proofing and Lies. We're going to post our weekly bakes, uh, and we'll also promote different episodes that we have coming up. Uh, I really hope you enjoy this interview. Uh, I hope you enjoy this because uh, you, Andrew, enjoy it because you didn't get to hear it the first time through. Yeah, no, I'm excited. And welcome back. Thank you all again for joining us for a third season. And uh, yeah, enjoy what we got. So this is Elle again. Uh, We're flying solo. I am without Andrew right now, but we are with Elaine Westfall of UC Irvine. Uh, And we're really excited to talk with her today about well, eco-terrorism, or about the environmental movement and state repression. So how are you doing today? I'm good. I'm so happy to be here virtually, and I'm excited to talk about one of my favorite subjects to talk about, although it's not necessarily uh, very happy. But um, yeah, it's good to be here. We're really excited to have you on. So my interest in this is I was a vegetarian since I was 12. I've recently gone pescatarian, but uh, I was really interested in animal rights and in the environment at a young age. 
And especially in the, in the 90s, early 2000s, there was a lot of kind of jokes about um, things PETA would do or Greenpeace. And we're starting to see um, a lot more activism around, around climate change and around water access, particularly. And I'm interested in what's going on and what's been going on from kind of the early 90s activism and backlash to now. Yeah, yeah. So this is kind of what sort of sparked my interest too. Um, some of these cases in the 90s and the early 2000s of um, environmental groups that some would perhaps call radical um, in some of the strategies that they were taking on. And so, yeah, so I, I know in 2002, the FBI counterterrorism section chief comes out and talks about this growing threat of eco-terrorism, um, which is really interesting because it's only a few months after, you know, the tragic attacks on the World Trade Center. But he starts talking about damage to property, essentially, um, and, and, you know, suggesting that this should come into the fold of what we consider to be to be terrorism. Um, and, it, you know, you mentioned animal rights, and, and he talks about that some too, I believe, which is also really interesting because some of the animal rights activist groups that um, are, are discussed and talked about really didn't do anything violent at all. They were just freeing animals from, you know, laboratories or slaughterhouses or, or things like that. Um, and then there's this move to begin thinking and talking about these people as terrorists. So it, yeah, it's really interesting you mentioned that. Well, and there was recently a case uh, with the Dakota Access Pipeline where two women got eight years in prison for essentially property damage. Mm -hmm. And almost all the cases I've seen are exclusively property damage, but they're, they're getting these high sentences as if they're committing violent crimes. And so I'm really curious about what's, what's going on there. Especially with the Dakota Access Pipeline case, this gets really interesting, too, when we start thinking about the overlap of interests surrounding some of uh, some of these larger scale oil pipeline protests. Um, and especially with the Dakota Access Pipeline protests, so much of what I saw, like in the, the um, rhetoric that folks who were actually at the protests um, have talked about is that there, there really, in a lot of cases, wasn't even property damage, right? Like a lot of these people were targeted simply for interfering with the construction of the pipeline, right? And so it's really interesting to begin to think about this paradox here between you have these people who are, is, are potentially going to be living in a region or uh, near a water source that's going to be polluted uh, by an oil pipeline. And, and, and there's a paradox there, but because that seems pretty violent to me. Um, and there's, of course, a long history there of indigenous land dispossession that has made the construction of these pipelines possible. And then to turn around and, and call those people and coalitions that were there to uh, act in, in support and defense of land and, and water protections, um, to call them terrorists or to associate them with something violent when they're not really doing anything. It's just, yeah, it's a really interesting paradox to me uh, when we think about the real scope of who's really been impacted by, by real violence here. 
Well, it's it's interesting to me. Uh, a lot of the kind of climate scholars, but climate activists I talk about talk about their activism in terms of self defense because losing access to water is losing access to life. And we have human rights that establish our need and, and uh, our right to water. And so it seems like there's very little recourse for people in these areas, uh, which makes these kind of harsh penalties more troubling to me, at least. I don't know if there's a question in there, but I guess what, from, from the expert standpoint, what are you seeing? Is that an accurate kind of portrayal of what's going on on the ground? Yeah, I mean, I think so, for sure. So much of so much of the discourse surrounding or that I've heard from people um, engaging in uh, environmental activism that ends up getting this radical label or this violent label or, you know, the terrorist label are talking about, you know, acting in defense of themselves and their and their lives and in future generations, as well as, yeah, land and water and the future of the world, if we like really want to talk about climate change in that way. Um, and so, yeah, I think that it, it's really, I think it's very accurate to think about this as a mode of resistance. Um, and, and, you know, to sort of think about what labeling it, who, who, yeah, who gets to label uh, legitimate protest and legitimate resistance and who gets to legitimate what counts as violence. Um, and there, um, I don't know if you've ever read the book Slow Violence by Rob Nixon, but he talks a lot about, yeah, this paradox between the violences that occur surrounding environmental degradation and climate change. And the fact that they're not perceived as a security threat or as an emergency threat because they don't strike the same urgency. It's a, it's a form of slow violence. Yeah. So no, I totally agree with you. I think that I think it's really important to think about this as a as a mode of resistance and an act of self-defense and an act of community defense and an act of, yeah, at an even bigger level in defense of the earth as we know it. I think my second impression of this movement is that that there's an added layer of it's it's being led, at least from what I can tell, by indigenous groups. So there's another layer of, you know, labeling this as violence, having state repression, and it's being led by indigenous peoples. And so I wondered, how does that dynamic come to play? And how, how much is this movement really um, being kind of spearheaded by indigenous groups? Yeah, so that's also the impression that I'm getting, um, not only in the United States, but sort of across the world, um, especially in parts of Latin America. Um, I've seen many pieces um, with, you know, that have interviewed women in uh, Latin America and in the Amazon who were really sort of spearheading some of these protests at, at local levels. And so, yeah, again, like the ultimate paradox that indigenous people are, are often leading this fight often in places with histories of settler colonialism, uh, which are, you know, I've, I've read as uh, a prolonged trauma against indigenous peoples, uh, and then to label them as violent and to label them as terrorists, and to also, you know, aside from discursively labeling them with these things, to sort of react in, in 
with counter-terrorist measures. Um, I, I read a piece about the Dakota Access Pipeline protests, and there were, so it was, uh, so just as a like brief refresher, in case anyone who's listening uh, wasn't super aware of this story, from what I've heard, essentially a, a peaceful protest at the foot of the construction of the Dakota Access Pipeline, um, and it was later infiltrated by private security forces. And so they, they used water cannons, they pounded people with rubber bullets, they you know, cut open TPs, um, and, and documents were later revealed that they'd been surveilling these people for a while, that they had suggested that they had um, jihadist aims, and I'm using that in quotation marks because it's, yeah, offensive in a number of ways and because there was really uh, no apparent link between this group and Islam or, or, or a jihad or anything like that. And so, yeah, you see some really interesting dynamics come to play there when we start associating people who are not doing anything violent and who a lot of the time aren't even engaging in property damage, uh, being labeled with these really violent labels with some of the uh, worst connotations that the American vocabulary has really come up with regarding terrorism. And yeah, so that, I mean, that happened. And then um, there was another case uh, sort of around this time. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with the case of the valve turners. It was a, a few activists who um, coordinated a pipeline shutdown across a few states um, in the Western U.S., and basically, from what I understand, they just showed up and turned the pipelines off and called the authorities on themselves. And so right after this happened, there was a bipartisan letter sent by a number of Congress people to the AG at the time, Jeff Sessions, asking him to consider this an act of terrorism, which is really interesting to me, especially as I like nosed around a little bit more in the in the Congress people who had signed off and all of the Democrats were from Texas, uh, which is home to Energy Transfer Partners, which was one of the uh, partners uh, involved in the Code Access Pipeline protest. And this gets really interesting when we start thinking about who benefits from using this discourse and this rhetoric at, at the public, at, a, at on a public stage, right? And, and perhaps in attempts to hinder the movement and uh, to, yeah, act in the interests of, you know, potentially lobbyists. Yeah. Yeah, and I think it really gets interesting when we begin to think about whose interests are benefiting from uh, labeling these coalitions of people with these types of terms. Well, that's so interesting to me because in our episode when we talked to Anna Meyer about terrorism, part of the reason we can't label uh, some of these white supremacist groups and, and even the Klan as terrorist groups is the legal definition of terrorism um, it just can't be, be applied domestically the same way, which is what I've always heard when there's pushback against labeling those groups as terrorists. So it's interesting to see Congress people then really trying hard to make this case for environmental activists. And it's not lost on me, the racial demographics of these groups are different. And so it's interesting that we are so resistant to labeling white groups as terrorist groups. Yeah, no, exactly. That's such a good point. And it's, it's also so 
profound, I think, that there's such a wide group of people in power uh, who have, you know, at least in the last five years, still pushed to consider these offenses that really look nothing like what much of the American public would consider to be terrorism in air quotes, you know, whatever that means. It's really interesting to see you know, th- yeah, these people continue to to make that push and and to ask the question of of why, what are they getting out of this? Yeah, yeah, I agree with you. I think it's I think it's really interesting. Part of my concern is I I study social movements and sociology, and one of the things I look at is uh, kind of threat assessment, right? So there's a certain a certain threshold um, where you know. If the stakes are high and the risks are low, you'll you'll take to the streets. If the risks are high and the likelihood of success are low, right, you, you might not. And so it seems like some of these earlier pipeline cases might be setting the stage for the costs of environmental activism will be so severe that it's almost like they're trying to head off maybe future actions as we are seeing more and more and more severe climate change concerns. I think that's my kind of doomsday concern. And I wonder if that's the direction you see this headed. That's one half of, of how I uh, how I imagine the future to unfold, um, maybe in my more uh, pessimistic mindset. But I don't know, maybe I'm just so scared of climate change that I have a little bit of hope left in me that we're somehow going to begin to to figure things out. But I do kind of hope that maybe as as the maybe as public opinion sways, I do think that um, maybe we're having continued outreach for uh, some of the pipeline protests across the United States. I know um, there was a pipeline that was supposed to cross over where I was living before I moved to California in Memphis. Um, and there were such protests and such outrage about it that actually the uh, the partners involved dropped it. Um, so there was that. And then there was a little bit of hope, I think, in um, Bi- President Biden's and the, his administration's decision to halt the Keystone XL pipeline. The downside of that is, of course, that that doesn't always happen and that we currently have, you know, line three in Minnesota um, that appears to be advancing as promised. And some of I've, you know, read accounts on Twitter of, of land and water defenders who have been there and have been involved in the protests, and they're describing much of what is similar to um, the Dakota Access Pipeline protests, which is being met with physical resistance. Um, and so I am hopeful maybe that that public opinion will continue to, to sway and to put pressure on politicians into these powerful entities. Uh, but yeah, there is that definitely uh darker side of it that yeah that maybe that that's not the case and that's not going to happen and things are just going to get worse and worse well i hope not i know <laughs> this is a very grim way to end to end my sentence i think i think part of me is hoping mobilizations will increase as i think this past summer has shown us like more and more people are being affected by climate change and I think are aware that there are not going to be that many places to flee to. I, I think a lot of people, and you saw this coming out of, I think in Germany, where there were flash floods, the woman kind of says the quiet part out loud. 
well, you know, you expect this to happen in poor countries. I didn't think it was going to happen in Europe. And I think we are seeing that now with with the heat domes and some of the more severe storms, people are realizing that, oh, I also have a stake in this. So hopefully that will mobilize more people. I think my, my interest is the state backlash to even the most kind of benign seeming protests. You saw in, in kind of Standing Rock, the Dakota Access Pipeline, these images coming out of people just standing on public property and being barraged. So it's certainly generating a lot of sympathy from the general public, but it's seeming to also generate a lot more repressive laws. Yeah, no, yes. And especially right after uh, Dakota Access Pipeline protests, I think, I can't remember the number exactly, but there were waves after, you know, after that, of, of all of these uh, bills that are lessening punishment for accidentally hitting a protester with your car, in air quotes, um, and there, that was one of them. There, yeah, there were just a whole host of, of uh, bills put forward to heighten, yeah, to heighten uh, punitive measures and repression against, uh, against, against activism and against protest. Um, so yeah, I do think that that's accurate. Where do you think the laws are going to go around this? Because I think activism is going to only increase. The question to me is how much is state repression going to increase in response to that? I mean, I think it depends in the U.S. I know uh, one of the cases that I've been kind of keeping up with that I mentioned earlier, the valve turners, I did see um, they were potentially at the time facing felony charges and those did get dropped. So um, yeah, I'll be interested to see what it really takes to achieve the felony charge or to, or to, to, yeah, to achieve one of these harsher sentences. Do you have to engage in property damage or can you just simply be there protesting? Um, because I do think I've seen just, you know, since the 1990s and 2000 cases with the more radical groups who were, you know, sometimes burning down ski resorts and car lots and really engaging in these um, wide-scale acts of property damage. I think that we're starting to see something a little bit different happening now. I know that there, yeah, there are definitely still cases of property damage, but I'm also just seeing a lot of cases of people being at a protest. I guess I do just keep taking on this optimistic uh, hope that as this continues, to broaden as this continues to fold more and more people into the fold that maybe such repression against environmental activists will lessen a bit. That's my hopeful take on it. Yeah. There's also a very grim dystopian world in which climate activists are jailed and then sent out to fight the climate change forest fires as part of the inmate firefighters. (laughs) But I think we can subvert that. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah, hopefully not. <laughs> There's certainly a novel in there somewhere. So I think my, my interest has largely been in kind of these, these pipeline protests. But I wondered, are there other trends that you're seeing or other kinds of protests going on? Yeah, so there's a lot of protest and a lot of resistance surrounding sort of extraction in general. Um, and this is across the world, so. In Canada, um, over the last couple of years, especially, 
Um, there have been wide-scale protests across the country surrounding, you know, the production of oil pipelines uh, or the construction, continued construction of them and expansion and things like that. A lot of it uh, has been Indigenous-led and, um, you know, has drawn in a number of, of allies. And, and similar to, you know, the cases we've been talking about in the U.S., a lot of this has centered around blockades. So blockading a, you know, a railroad track or something like that so that supplies can't get to and fro. In Australia, I've read some some articles about, um, you know, anti-coal and, and mining protests and similar remarks from politicians calling these people, villainizing them, saying, you know, really negative things, um, securitized language, things like that. In the UK, I know that Extinction Rebellion, of course, is really active. There was actually a, an article that The Guardian published, I think a year or two ago, um, that talked about when authorities would come to arrest uh, Extinction Rebellion protesters, they would go floppy, so like go limp and just like fall on the ground so that they couldn't be picked up, um, which is kind of funny to me. But, um, and yeah, and then there is a, you know, a really tragic thing that's happening across the world, which is that Climate activists and land and water defenders are being killed at increasing rate at increasing rates, um, and I believe it dispro- disproportionately impacts Indigenous people. Um, and often, Indigenous women are are leading some of these fights and and face specific challenges and uh, harms in in doing so. So there's a there's really a global trend happening happening surrounding this. Um, of course, it varies from state to state and um, with, you know, the type of protest that, you know, it's surrounding, whether it's um, oil or, you know, hydroelectric dam construction or um, tar sands expansion, those types of things. But I do think it's really interesting that there does seem to be a global phenomenon of these varying types of repression against people involved in the environmental movement from both politicians from uh, and from, you know, uh, the entities themselves benefiting from extraction. I'm curious, and maybe this is beyond the the scope of what you do. So I'm curious about the role of gender in all this, because it does seem to be a movement led by women and particularly women of color. Mm -hmm. Um, And I wonder if that's wrapped up in in state violence, Um, if maybe the risks are different or why, well, I guess the first question is, is it primarily being led by women? And then if so, why do you think that might be? Yeah, um, that's an interesting question. So I, from just from some of the stats that I've looked at, um, I know that as a whole, um, men are still being killed at a higher rate, but there have been a lot of really good articles that have come out with um, women with interviews with women, um, particularly in parts of Central and Latin America, who are sort of leading this this fight against climate change. And um, you know, I don't want to, you know, misquote anyone or anything, but some of what I picked up on were sort of smear campaigns um targeted against some of these women uh for sort of daring to step out and speak out and uh to defend you know, their lives and the land and water around them. Um, And the idea that that's not something that women should do. And I think certainly you can trace that back 
for a long time, um, you know, especially in places with uh, histories, histories of settler colonialism, how entangled that is in, in state violence. Um, so yeah, they, I've heard accounts, I've read accounts of that and, and you know, you know, unfortunate um, gender-based violence targeting, that, that type of thing. So when you, I guess when you say men are being killed at a higher rate, is that, is that state repression? Is that? So that's been a little bit difficult for me to parse out um, just because I think there have been many cases in which um, environmental activists have been killed or harmed and it's been, there has not been a clear perpetrator. Um, So I think that in some cases, there have been instances of state repression and some others there's been, um, you know, those industrial actors or people uh, near them, or maybe even people in the community who are, um, you know, perhaps financially benefiting from the construction of some of these um, extractive projects. So, yeah, I think there is some level of state entanglement though in, in, in many of these cases, um, but it's sort of difficult to, to parse out exactly um, when it comes to, yeah, the violence and, and death against, and yeah, violence against land and water defenders. Part of this tension in labeling this, their uh, environmental activists as terrorism is I haven't really heard of any cases of environmental activists causing anyone's death, at least not in the US. And so I guess kind of the perception of like dangerous environmental radicals, right? Uh, when it seems like they are much more at risk of being harmed. Yeah, no, exactly. Um, I know there was one case in either the late 90s or early 2000s where um, there was, you know, when tree spiking was happening often, I think a logger was injured. That's really the only case that I can think of in the United States. So yes, like at, at a physical, you know, immediate bodily level across the world. I think that there's definitely um, a higher risk of these people being harmed. And then there's, you know, of course, this broader picture, which is that there are these slower forms of violence that are happening uh, to them and to the people around them. It draws some really interesting questions about what especially the United States tends to protect. And you know, especially in these cases, I think it becomes very apparent that often, often that's industry and often that's, you know, money, often that's, yeah, I think it, 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 it draws attention to a very, very long history of colonial expansion and capitalism and choosing to protect industry and property and the interests, those large scale entities over the people being directly affected by them, which often are uh, indigenous people um, and sort of more broadly, more people come into that as um, we continue to um, live under the climate crisis. That, I mean, of course there are you know, different interests involved and, and this is a much broader topic to talk about uh, indigenous land dispossession and all of the harms that have come to indigenous people. But yeah, I think it, it really speaks to some very old dynamics, if that makes sense. I think that definitely makes sense. 
it's interesting that you brought up the, was it tree spiking? Because I was explaining to someone we were doing an episode and we were going to talk about, you know, eco-terrorism. And they said, oh, you mean those people who put razor blades in the trees to kill loggers? (laughs) And I said, what? Um, Because I hadn't heard of this, but they were describing it and they thought it had been like a mass casualty event. And it, it wasn't. Again, that's an example from early 2000s or the 90s. And so it's interesting to see in 2020, we're getting these felony charges and these nearly decade long prison sentences to stop, you know, environmental radicals, when it seems like there's not a lot radical going on. Yeah, And, you know, the fact that uh, the person you were speaking with thought that this was a, you know, mass casualty event really attests to how important language, you know, and the, the narrative pushed by the media, what an effect that had on people consuming news, especially at that time. Yeah, no, it, and it's really interesting because, you know, as I've sort of perused some of those uh, groups' websites, um, they've really, they've really emphasized commitments to nonviolence and to try to make sure that no human or animal was harmed during these acts of what they called economic sabotage or ecotage. You know, of course, there was that one um, incident, which, you know, a logger was unfortunately harmed. But um, yeah, the the goals and the intents seem to be very different from what we would typically associate um, with terrorism. Uh, Not that I have no problems with what we consider as you know, popularly to be terrorism and and the definition with all that, but that's beside the point. Um, But yeah, this does seem to look very different from that. I think it's interesting that although the tactics have somewhat changed, um, that we're still seeing sort of similar rhetoric used to describe people involved in non-conventional um, whatever that means, non-conventional uh, environmental resistance. Um, I think Greenpeace also had some allegations of eco-terrorism um, for, you know, intending to do some of these engaged in property damage. Um, so that's something really interesting to think about how that has sort of discursively shifted and maybe come to a more um, mainstream conventional uh, context. I think that there's, um, yeah, there's a push to associate these people who are emphasizing nonviolence, um, as did, you know, I read and, and watched documentaries and interviews with, you know, people involved with Standing Rock. And, and most of the people interviewed also said, you know, we don't, this is not an act of violence. If you're going to come here and be violent, we don't want you here. Um, and so I think that that's, you know, that's really important to think about when we want to start calling people radicals and violent and terrorists is what, what were even these people's motives or intentions? I wonder how much um, popular media kind of has fueled this, because I remember particularly kind of early aughts, the, the television shows, you know, that would depict like environmentalists as either kind of just not serious people. They were like silly or as like a bit unhinged with like these violent fantasies, you know, they wanted to like 
bomb bridges or things like that. And um, you know, these fictional stories in the in, in pop culture. And I wonder how much of those like fictional narratives are why people think this way about the environmentalist movement, because it doesn't seem like there are non-fiction examples of this. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's, it's funny you say that because I'm tapped into like Google alerts for, um, you know, eco-terrorism and I don't, I don't see it come up too often um, other than the uh, Tracy Stone Manning Bureau of Land Management, you know, stuff with pushback for her, yeah, becoming part of the Bureau of Land Management. Um, and, but anyway, so yeah, a lot of the Google alerts do bring up still like sci-fi references to eco-terrorists and things like that. That's something I really haven't explored much, but that I've had a couple of people suggest it might be something worth looking into. So I think, yeah, I think that you're right. And I think that media definitely has influenced the way in which people perceive environmentalists and uh, the environmental movement. So I know one of the things that, that it gives me hope about the climate is funny uh, enough, it's TikTok. It's climate activists, like teenagers on TikTok doing yes. climate activism. Um, and so I wondered kind of what, what are you optimistic about? What things are you seeing that are giving you some hope? Yeah, so I actually haven't gotten TikTok yet. I've been holding off uh, for so long because I know it's just going to consume my life once I can't even get it. But that's something I almost mentioned earlier because it does seem like there's something different going on with this upcoming generation of teenagers and um, you know young adults who are really yeah living in under a constant threat of of climate change. Not that you know this hasn't been going on for a while, but I do think that there's a lot of discussion about it now, and so that does make me hopeful. I actually attended. Um, a rally, I guess it was a couple of years ago in Memphis, you know, during uh, some of the beginning of what Greta Thunberg was calling for uh, with, you know, uh, protests and rallies. Um, and so anyway, but when I was there, it was, you know, it was largely made up of young people and teenagers who came after school to go out there and, you know, sit and protest and, you know, hold up signs and things like that. And that was really, really cool to me. Um, and so that does give me hope with like the this upcoming generation of, of young adults. And, you know, also, you know, I think that there, we are getting a few more progressive members of, um, of Congress that give me some hope too. So yeah, I do have hope that maybe things are changing, um, especially, yeah, with young people. And, and I'm hoping that public sentiment will continue to sway. So is there anything we didn't talk about that, that you'd like to talk about? I think I've, mentioned quite a few times now how interested I am with this with this paradox here that you know we're calling people violent we're calling people terrorists we're um linking we're you know they're receiving punitive measures violence death um all in the face of this very large grave uh looming climate crisis which is actually causing you know violence to people all across the world um and so I'm I think that that's something really important to consider when we all continue to hear the way or to read the ways and, and hear the ways in which these people are framed in news media and to, you know, continue to, 
ask questions about why they're being framed in the ways that they are and who that benefits and who that hurts and what that does for the overall environmental movement. Well, I, I think it, the use of terrorism is always interesting to me. The use of the word terrorism, I should mm-hmm. say, because again, like when we, we had our uh, episode on terrorism, we talked about it as, you know, it's, it's viewed as illegitimate violence or people who are not permitted to use violence, right, against the state. And so it's really interesting to see that applied to citizens against oil companies, right? So what does that mean? What does the state see itself as? Yeah, it, it's really, really troubling if you think about it for yeah. uh, any amount of time. Yeah, and- it, it starts to become difficult to separate sometimes the state from the industry, um, which you're right, is very troubling. There's certainly ties to capitalism that I think are are important here, right? So yeah, uh, well, thank you so much for coming on. We are incredibly excited to, you know, talk more about the climate, talk more about law and policy. No, that's, I'm, I'm so happy that, um, I'm so happy to come on and to talk about this with you. Thank you so much. Uh, where can people find you and your work? Uh, is there uh, a website or some handles you want to drop? Still in process. Um, my Twitter, what is my Twitter handle? I don't even know. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm still in process with a website, but um, my uh, Twitter is ES Westfall and Westfall is W-E-S-T-F-A-U-L. Hopefully our listeners will find you there. Uh, we're really excited to learn more.